Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon. Winding down the Christmas movie conversations. I'd love to hear from a couple of people their favorite Christmas movies. So raise your hand, I'll call on you. I just want to hear what your favorite Christmas movie is. Yeah. White Christmas. Old school. Is that black and white or no? Like barely color, right? Yeah. Elf. Yeah. Anybody, any elf fans in the house? Any elf fans? Okay, great. A uh, couple more. What else you got? What's up? Jim Carrey's The Grinch. A very, yeah, that was a great adaptation of it. And then we got a couple more. I heard something. Muppets Christmas. Classic. Very classic. Let's do one more. Charlie Brown Christmas. Vince Guaraldi Trio, one of the best, piano, if you don't look it up, piano, Christmas, all the vibes. Um, I am Michael. I'm a pastor here. I'm the new, pa- I'm new here. Uh, so if you're like back in town, yeah. If you're, if you're back in town from college, like who is this man? Um, I am the new YA pastor. It is very nice to meet you and uh, really glad to be with you. Uh, tonight, we co- we're almost at Christmas and naturally, we're going to talk about Jesus tonight, okay? We're going to talk about Jesus' birth, and we're going to talk about it in a different way. And to talk about it, we're going to talk about stories. So name any of those, any of those movies you named, uh, any book that you've read, any show that you love. Um, it, it, it follows a, a, a formula, there's like this guru, his name's Robert McKee, and, and screenwriters will go to this guy's workshop to learn how to write good screenplays. And he sums up in one sentence, any good story that we all love, this is what makes it. Let's throw this quote up on the screen. It says, a story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Super simple. So this is like the story equation. Let's throw up the next one. It's a main character who desires something and overcomes conflict to get the thing that they want. This is like a formula that any screenwriter is gonna use. So like, let's just plug in a movie, like throw any any Marvel movie, like let's take the Avengers, for example, and let's say the Avengers are the main character. Uh, the, The great thing that they want is to save the world. They have to overcome, what's that guy's name? Thanos, Thanos. They got to overcome Thanos to get the thing that they want, and that's to save the world. Take any Hallmark movie in the history of Hallmark movies. Um, It's a a woman from a big town who goes to a small town (laughs) and who wants to like regain her sense of self and find true love. And she overcomes adjusting to the small town and saving the Christmas tree farm with this guy through her marketing skills from the big city to get the thing that she wants, right? And that's true love and saving the Christmas tree farm and living happily ever after with the guy in the flannel shirt. So, but this is crazy. There's this thing that's hardwired into our brains. We love this formula. Like you go in and watch the Avengers, you know they're gonna win, but you watch the whole thing. You watch this Hallmark movie, you know this woman is gonna fall in love with this man, but you watch the whole thing. And at this time of year, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, right? And if you've been around the church, it's a story that you've heard over and over and over again, but it's pretty incredible to me that um, this story equation that's hardwired into our brains is hardwired for a reason. Because if you think of the gospel, if you think of Jesus Christ coming into earth and becoming a human, it follows the storyline. It follows the good story equation. The most famous gospel verse that we have is John 3.16. And I want us to think about it through the lens of story. You have God, who's the main character. He so loved the world, he desired something so great. 
that he gave his only son, he overcomes great conflict, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. At the end of the day, God gets the thing that he wants. It goes into the story equation. And that's what we celebrate at this time of year. If you're in this room, I need you to hear this. We celebrate that God became one of us and that God lived a life on this earth and he died a death on the cross and he overcame death in the grave so that we might be in relationship with him. But here's the thing about the gospel story. You can't just listen to the gospel story without paying attention to your own story. So as we walk through tonight, as we unpack this gospel story, I want you to be thinking about your own story throughout. And to start this, we're going to be in John 1. John 1, 1, uh, John takes Jesus's birth from a more cosmic, big picture angle. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they get in the nitty gritty more. And John takes it from this big picture perspective as he looks at the birth of Jesus. And it says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. I love this. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The title of our sermon tonight is In the Darkness Has Not Overcome It. God, we just pray right now. We pray um, that we would be very present to you. God, you're not asking us to show up with masks on. You're not asking for us to show up as per perfect people. If we were honest in here, God, we would admit that we are all a mess in some way, shape, or form. And we're so thankful that we can show up here just as we are and not as we should be, God, because not one person in this room is as they should be. So Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you move through your word? God, would you wake up things that are sleeping in our lives? Would you heal things that are broken in our lives? And would you bring life to things that are dead and dying in our lives? And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I need to know about John's gospel and how he talks about Jesus, the first thing I need to know is Jesus is different. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is different. Jesus is different. Hear this. John takes this all the way back to the beginning to explain who Jesus is. He's saying Jesus is not just the Messiah. He's not just a prophet. He's so much more than that. He's saying Jesus is different. He's different than Muhammad. He's different than Buddha. Jesus is different of any religious figure you'll ever come into contact with. John is saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He goes on to say, that word became flesh. That word is Jesus. Conclusion, Jesus is God. And he's different than any religious figure you're gonna run into. Tim Keller puts it brilliantly. He says, the founders of every major religion said, I'll show you how to find God. Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. Jesus is different. And can we just pause and look at the character and the nature of this God for a second? This is a God who spoke all of creation into existence and could have saved you and could have saved me with one word, but he chose to come and not come as a conquering king and not come on clouds, but come as a baby in a manger to an immigrant mom who was oppressed and on the run. He came for the powerless. He didn't come for the powerful. He came meekly. He didn't come to rule and to reign in an earthly kingdom. This is the kind of God that we had. He chose to show up to the humble and not the proud. And I need you to hear tonight that if you were in here, you need to hear this. God is close. He is not far off. God is close and he is not far off. He is not aloof. He is empathetic. 
He is Emmanuel. He's not Emmanuel God far away from us. He's not Emmanuel God disinterested in us. He is not Emmanuel unreachable by us. He is Emmanuel God with us. And that's what this season represents. So know that wherever you find yourself tonight, you have a God who is with you. Did you notice that in the start of this book of John 1, it said, in the beginning? In the beginning was the word. Does that ring a bell of any other book in the Bible for you? In the beginning. So what John is doing here, and I heard it from a couple people, the entire book of the Bible, the entire narrative of Scripture starts the same way that John starts it. He's doing this on purpose. He's calling out a bigger story. He starts with, in the beginning was the word. Genesis starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John's this master storyteller that's using very specific language to connect us back to this larger story on purpose. He's connecting the dots from the God of the universe and this Jesus that shows up on the scene. And remember, this is the best story that's ever been told, the gospel, right? And so it has to follow this best story equation. And so we get Genesis 1 saying, in the beginning, God. And we're just going to stop right there. In the beginning, God. This is, the, this is the thing you need to know about this gospel story is that God is the main character. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's the main character. God's the main character. This might sound simple. This might sound like a dumb point to start with, but it's very important to, for me to make it abundantly clear who the main character is. It's God. It's not you. It's not me. It's not us. It might seem simple, but if we understood that truth alone, it would completely revolutionize our lives. We are not the main character of this story. And we're currently swimming in this cultural context that screams at you, you are the main character of the story that this entire life is about acquiring as much as you can and achieving as much as you can and putting yourself out there as much as you can to, compromise, to accomplish all of your dreams and maximize every opportunity that you have. But that's not what the story of Scripture says. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want you to think about that. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because it shapes everything else about how we see this world. So if the most important thing that, about us is what comes to mind when we think about God, I wanna ask you the question, what comes to mind when you think about God? Do you see him as main character? Or do you see you as main character? Because the truth is, if we're the main character, God's nothing more than a genie in a bottle and than God on the throne, and he's only as good as his last answered prayer in our lives. If we're the main character, God's more Santa Claus coming down the chimney than an Alpha and Omega, and he's only as good as his last gift that he's given you. The truth is, you're not the main character and I'm not the main character. The truth is, our life is like a mist or a morning fog. We're here for a little while and then we're gone. But he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he is the main character in the story of our lives. But I think for so many of us, we kind of get that he's the main character. But I think what we're really longing for is clarity from him on what he wants us to do. Like, God, who do you want me to marry? God, what's, what's my purpose in life? Like, what are you calling me to in life? God, are you, are you calling me to another job? God, are you calling me to move across the country? I was talking, uh, me and my wife, Faith, were talking to Sophie, one of our worship leaders, the other night, and just asking about her life, what's going on? Like, you know, what do you think is next? And it was interesting because there's just a little lack of clarity going on for her. Nothing crazy, but she's like, I just don't know. I'm kind of in a season of waiting, kind of in a season of I don't know what's next. 
And it was funny, this thought came to my mind that as Christians, so much of the time, we're longing for so much clarity that clarity can become an idol in our lives. That we want clarity more than we want Jesus. And, 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 it, and it hit me that that wasn't an original thought. Usually when I have an original thought, somebody else had it first, right? It's not mine. And it reminded me of Mother Teresa. And there's a story of this famous ethicist. His name is John Cavanaugh. And he went to Calcutta seeking Mother Teresa. And he was, he was searching for more. And he went for three months to work at the house of the dying to find out how he could best spend the rest of his life. And he finally meets Mother Teresa. And he, he asked her to pray for him. And he said, what do you want me to pray for? And he, and, and he replied. And he had been waiting for this moment with this woman for so long. And he, and he said, clarity. Pray that I have clarity. And Mother Teresa is just gangster with her response, okay? She says, no. <laughs> I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to that you must let go of. When Kavanaugh said that she always seemed to have clarity and, that the, and he was looking for the kind of clarity that she had, she said this, and you can put that quote up there, I have never had clarity. What I've always had is trust, so I will pray that you will trust God. I love this so much because if we're truly honest in here, if we got clarity, we could go ahead back to our regularly scheduled programming and take the keys back from God and put him back in the passenger seat. And some of us aren't ready for the clarity that God has for us, and he's holding back clarity because you're in a season of maturing and becoming everything that you need to be so he can give you the clarity for your next assignment. It's not his indifference towards you that gives you a lack of clarity. It's actually his kindness towards you because if he gave the clarity, you wouldn't even be in a place where you could obey it in the first place. You might be in here tonight longing for the clarity, and I'm just going to join Mother Teresa and her gangster self and just say, I'm not going to pray that for you. I'm going to pray that you will have more trust because that is what travels. That is what matters. That is what God is longing for from you. So we have the main character, God, right? Let's go on in the story equation. Uh, the second thing that I want to tell you tonight is we are the great thing that he desires, you sitting here are the great thing that he desires. We're gonna go continue on in Genesis and say this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God creates Adam and he creates Eve. Adam in Hebrew actually means human. He created us as human beings and he created us in his image. In the Latin, it's imago Dei. And what this means is us being created in God's image is more than anything else in all of created. We were designated and designed to reflect his beauty and his truth and his creativity and his grace and his love and his justice. We're created to reflect all of that more than anything. So just like Mozart or Prince most fully reflect the truest essence of music, you were created to, to reflect the full essence of God. Just like Michael Jordan, yes, Michael Jordan, and Messi reflect the truest essence of basketball or soccer, you were created to reflect the full essence of God out of anything else in all creation. I need you to hear this today. Paul says as he's writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, uh, he says, you're God's masterpiece. In the Greek, it's poema, poema. 
And it's this idea that God had something to say to the world and you are what he had to say to the world. You are God's masterpiece. And somebody in here needs to hear that tonight because we don't always feel like masterpieces, do we? We don't always feel like we're this beautiful reflection of God. So tonight in a world that might have taken something for you, in a life where you might have made some bad choices, in a life where comparison has robbed you of all joy, you were a masterpiece and you were the great thing that God desires. With your negative self-talk, with your anxiety, with your depression, even in the midst of an addiction, God says, you are my masterpiece, my daughter, my son. You are the great thing that I desire. I want to remind you tonight that this is the God, this is the main character that leaves the 99 and goes after the run, the one, that is running out to meet you as you run back from running away from him. He's the God that rejoices over you with his singing because you are his masterpiece and you are the thing that he desires so greatly. Hear that truth tonight. God is the main character and you are the thing that he desires. But for a good story, we got to have some conflict, Right? If God just got you without conflict, that wouldn't even be a good story. And so we have to introduce sin. The obstacle is introduced and it's sin. Have you ever sinned and you just knew it was wrong right when you did it? You know, like you do wrong sometimes and you can like kind of justify it. And then there's other times where you're like, that was wrong, wrong on sight. Like I knew it was wrong the second I did it, right? So I was in seventh grade. I was over at my friend's house. Their, their uh, backyard backed up to Westlake Boulevard down kind of by Westlake Elementary down there. And uh, they had an orange tree in their backyard and there was oranges that were all over the ground. And we were like, we need to get these oranges out of the yard. And so um, in order to get the oranges out of the yard, we decided it'd be a good idea to take these oranges and throw them at cars that were driving by naturally as seventh graders, right? And so we get to clearing the yard of the oranges and we got into this rhythm of we would, you know, pick up an orange, pop up, throw it, duck, and then laugh, right? And pick up an orange, pop up, throw it, duck, and laugh. And we just got in this rhythm, grab an orange, pop up, throw it, duck down, and laugh until one orange, we gra- somebody grabbed one, we pop up, throw it, duck, screeching tires, thud, silence, no laughing. (laughs) And we're sitting there, we're freaking out. So very slowly, we just stayed down and walked back into the house. We were like kind of smelling our hands and they smelled like oranges. So we like go straight, (laughs) we go straight to the sink and wash them off. It was like, like in one of those movies, like at a crime scene where somebody's like trying to get like blood off their hands or something. We're like, get this orange scent off of our hands. Like they'll never know it was us if we don't have smelly hands. Um, And then the phone rings. And this man on the other lines, he says, "Um, you just hit my car with an orange. My wife is hysterical. I'm sitting out in front of your house and we've called the police. And it was just that moment, right? It was that moment where you knew you messed up. You knew you had done wrong. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to jail for life for sure, right? (laughs) Um, It it ended up being okay. Uh, We got written up. Uh, It's not on my record. Praise the Lord. Um, But do you remember that? Maybe another example? Just the first time you did something and you knew it was wrong. Maybe it was the first time you lied to your parents or maybe you cheated on a test. Maybe it's like the first time you looked at pornography or first time you tried that drug. I don't know what it is for you, but we all know that feeling of the first time we did it and we knew it was wrong. It's the worst feeling. And to understand the obstacle of sin in this great story, we have to understand the nature of sin. And to understand the nature of sin, you have to understand the nature of God's design for us when it comes to us as human beings. And here's the news flash. We're not real 
robots. We are not programmed to just do good. We're not programmed to just choose right. God created us with the ability to choose good and to choose bad, to choose right and to choose wrong. And it begs the question, why would God create us like that? And I think C.S. Lewis has an amazing answer, and it says this. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. God created us with free will so that we could freely choose him because he wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want robots that are pre-planned with a hardwired operating system just to love him. So that's the nature of sin. That's our nature as humans. And then we get to the villain. Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Friends, we're introduced to the villain in Genesis 3, and, and it's a snake, which feels right because I hate snakes, and snakes are terrifying, and I never want to touch them or see them, but all we know about this creature is that it's in rebellion against God and is trying to lead people in rebellion against God. I want you to hear this. God told Adam and Eve a story and a truth about the tree and about their choice, And the serpent comes in and just twists that and tells them a completely different story about the tree and about the choice. And I want to pause here and say something about the enemy and something about Satan. He is good. Not like good. He's good at his job. Like really good. He's a master deceptor and a master storyteller. But here's the thing. He's not original. He doesn't have an original version of truth. All he can do is take God's truth and twist it. So that's what Satan does. And in this moment, he does three things. Everybody say three things. He plants a seed of doubt. He minimizes the consequences of sin. And then he makes them question the goodness of their God. So first he plants a seed of doubt and he does it with a question, which is so brilliant. He says, did God really say that? And an important truth comes from this exchange between Satan and Eve that sin starts in the mind. I need you to hear that. Sin starts in the mind. It it, it starts with the enemy introducing thoughts that don't agree with God's thoughts, narratives that don't agree with God's narratives, twisted and untrue versions of God's truth. The enemy sells us on a different version of reality that doesn't line up with God's version of reality. So what do these lies look like in our head? It looks like lies that make you think you're less of a masterpiece than you actually are, or thoughts that make you look down on somebody else because of what they've done. It looks like thoughts or it looks like us making allowances or exceptions or excuses in our heads to live differently than God has told us to live. And that's why it's so important to know scripture so that you can test your thoughts against the truth of God. Because what the enemy will do is take the truth of God and twist it and introduce it into your head in a way that will have you living outside of God's will. Does that make sense? I'm going to keep talking about sin. For some of us, sin's like, yeah, I can talk about it. For some of us, it's like, man, I don't like talking about sin. 
It's good to talk about because God has something to say about it. The second thing that the enemy does is he minimizes the consequences of sin. Think about this. He says, surely you will not die to Eve. God said, you'll die. (laughs) God says, you'll die. The enemy says, surely you will not die. I need you to hear this. Satan's the master of convincing us that disobedience isn't that big of a deal. He says, surely you will not die, but we know that the wages of sin is death, and God made that clear, and that surely they would die if they ate from this tree. He's the master of convincing us that there are no consequences to our sin. Heard a pastor say one day that sin will take you farther than you ever thought you would go and make you stay longer than you thought you would stay and make you pay way more than you ever thought you would pay. I want you to hear that again. Sin will take you farther than you thought you would go make you pay way more than you thought you would pay and stay longer than you thought you would stay. But can we acknowledge this about sin? I don't think we acknowledge this in church very much. Sin is fun. Can I, can I, get, anybody, can I get a witness in here at all that would agree with me that sometimes sin's fun? Can we just be honest about that? Like, like it actually feels good or tastes good at first. In terms of like instant gratification, it delivers on its brand promise like almost every time, like to start. Like to start, that's like, oh, that tasted good or that was really fun, but it does nothing but take from you over time. Like I love donuts. Does anybody else love donuts? Yeah? I kind of, I can eat like 10 of them in one sitting. It's like the same with pizza. I just like never get full off of them. But I don't eat donuts very often because I've learned over the years that like I can eat 10 donuts, still be hungry, be exhausted, and like want to take a nap afterwards. This is what sin does to us. It tastes good in the moment, but the more and more we consume it, we realize how empty it is. Like for some of you, that first hookup with that girl, with that guy felt awesome. But after the 10th time and no commitment and you've gone further and further and further, you've given your body away to someone that doesn't care about your heart, that doesn't feel very good. Or talking behind that person's back, the first time you did it it probably felt justified because they hurt you, but the second or third time, you realize that you just became like a bad person that's just talking about other people and dragging their name through the mud. Sin looks like little compromises over a long period of time that'll have you in a place that you never thought you would be and that's far away from God. It makes us question, the last thing it does is it makes us question the goodness of God and I need you to hear this because somebody is in this place tonight. This is what Satan says. He says, for God knows that when you eat, it, eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing both good and evil. I want you to hear this translation that I have for this tonight. The translation of what the enemy is saying and what Satan's saying here is God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be on his level. God's obsessed with control and God has too many rules and he's rigid, even worse, he's stingy. Satan plants doubt about God's goodness, God's intention and God's provision in our lives. The craziest thing is he says, if you eat this, you'll be more like God. There's nobody else in all of creation who is more like God than Adam and Eve at that point. He's saying, eat this, you'll be more like God. Adam and Eve out of all of creation are the most like God, and that's insane. And this is what happens. Satan will convince us that we will have to work for what God has already freely provided. He'll convince you that you have to work hard for something God has already given you. So Adam and Eve are presented with this choice. They're presented with this choice, and this is truly the choice. It's trust God's definition of good and evil, or sees autonomy and define good and evil for themselves. 
And for the record, this is our choice to this very day. Culture is screaming at you to seize autonomy and to find good and evil for yourself. We sang about it earlier. It's the message of today. And it really is, if you were to categorize it, it's the gospel of secularism, which says you get to define your own truth and you get to live your own truth as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Has anybody heard this before? It's like define your truth, live your truth, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, which is just just like at like immediately, logically doesn't work out. Because if we're all defining good and evil for ourselves, and we can do whatever we want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, um, we are aware that we all hurt each other, right? So if we don't have a common definition of good and evil, then nobody has to say sorry and nobody has to repent. And it all puts us in the position that God is in, that we get to define what is right and what is wrong. And that's too big of a job for you or anybody else. It goes on to, the story as it continues on, goes on to show Adam and Eve taking the bite of the apple. And they take the bite of the apple and two things happen when they sin. The first thing is they hide from one another. Somebody say, we hide. The first thing that happens when we sin is we hide. Adam and Eve feel shame for the first time and it makes them hide. They make coverings for themselves and hide from one another. That place that they knew intimacy and connection with one another, now they feel distance and disconnection. And we might judge Adam and Eve, but let's be honest, this is exactly what we do when we sin. We hide. There are specific lies that make us hide and they sound like this. And, and I know that we've felt these in the room tonight. These lies say you're the only one who's struggling with this. What would people think if they knew about this? What would happen to you if you told the truth about yourself? Like I have the question tonight, where are you hiding in your life tonight outside of community and isolation, not telling the truth about yourself because you believe the lie that you're the only one and if people really knew you, they would reject you. And for some of us, that's happened in the church. And maybe the church has rejected you in some way, shape, or form, and that's fair. And as a leader in the church, I want to acknowledge that and say that if that's been your experience, I'm so sorry. Because the church shouldn't be like that. The church should be so much more like recovery groups. Recovery groups, if you've never heard of them or been around them, it's for people who are like going into a room and saying, I have a problem. And they're saying, I have a problem with, you know, uh, substances, whether it's alcohol or drugs, or I have a problem with relationships. I might have like, you know, a codependency addiction or a sex addiction or something like that. But it's people walking into a room. And the beautiful thing about recovery is everybody walks into this room and everybody's sitting on the same foundation that I am messed up and I need help. There are no masks that you can put on in recovery because the very reason you're there is because you're jacked up. And that's what the church needs to be. We all need to walk into this room on a weekly basis with our hand in the air saying, I'm jacked up and you're jacked up too. And I'm so glad that we know where to go. And I'm so glad that we have a God that meets us exactly where we are and not where we should be. So the first thing that we do is we hide from one another and Adam and Eve hide from each other and we hide from each other all the day or, or all the time. And then we hide from God. Adam and Eve, after they sin, play hide and seek with God. 
I want you to wrap your mind around that. They play hide and seek with God. They hide from each other. And then the Lord, like, it's like a, it's like a dad playing hide and seek with like their toddler, like walking around knowing exactly where they are and calling out to them, where are you? It's like he knows exactly where they are and he calls out to them and asks where they are. And I love that about God because he's not coming, demanding to know where they are. He knows exactly where they are and he asks where they are as a bid for connection with his children. I want to, I love what an old mentor of mine uh, told me. Um, she, I, I did YWAM, Youth with a Mission. It was a missions organization. And this woman named, her name was Ginger Cash. Such a cool name, Ginger Cash. She always said, um, God will always meet you at your point of honesty and your point of need for him. Like God will always meet you at your point of honesty and your point of need for him. I think so much of the time when we find ourselves, when we've done something wrong, um, we want to avoid God. When we're kind of stuck in a cycle, we don't want to come to God because it means we might have to change. Uh, when, we, when we're stuck in a cycle, we don't want to come to God because we think he might be angry at us or we're going to experience his wrath. But I love that. It's that God will always meet you at your point of honesty and your point of genuine need for him. Scripture says a broken heart and a contrite spirit the Lord has yet to deny. Scripture says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so God comes looking for them to give them that chance. If you find yourself in a place of darkness tonight, hiding from God, I just need you to know that this is his posture towards you. Even if you're a good Christian who's been going to church for a long time, you might have something in your life tonight that you're like, nah, I just, that part, I just can't bring that part to God. His posture is like the dad and the prodigal son running out as his son runs, comes home. His posture is the shepherd going after the lost sheep. We know that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we've been sitting in this sin for a while now, right? We started in John talked about the word that was in the beginning that came into flesh and said, man, that sounds familiar and went back and we determined together that God is the main character, that we are the thing that he wants so badly and that this thing called sin enters into the picture and that when we sin, we hide from one another and we hide from God. And then God comes after Adam and Eve and there are consequences for their choice and he lets them know about those. And this greatest story, the gospel, continues on with the main character still longing to be with his people, but sin being in between God and his people. And then we'll just see this rhythm set into motion from Genesis to Matthew. And this rhythm is God makes promises to his people, he blesses his people, and he gives them a choice. They get to choose life or they get to choose death. And we choose death more often than we choose life. We hide from each other, we hide from him, and he comes after us, and that cycle repeats over and over and over. That is the story of scripture until we get to John 1. And this is the final point. This is where the main character overcomes the conflict. You see, we talked about other religions in the beginning. We talked about like Buddha, and we talked about Muhammad. Um, Every religion will come before you and put a ladder in front of you and say, you follow these steps to get to God. And what I love about Jesus is he came down the ladder of heaven and said, I am here to find you. All you have to do is trust and believe in me. 
And it's not through more effort or being a better person, but because of his blood, it's because of his sacrifice, it's because of his love, and it's because of his grace, it's because of his resurrection. That's what makes this story good. He gave up his son. He gave up his life so that we could know him. But here's the crazy thing. Think about it. For the story to truly be good, the main character has to get what they want, right? If the main character doesn't get what they want, the story is not good. And the unbelievable thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the story, that the main character doesn't necessarily get what he wants. I want you to think about that. God doesn't necessarily get what he wants because he's given you a choice. I told you to think about your own story in connection to the gospel. God is the main character. He desires you. He's given up his life for you. He wants you, but he doesn't get you unless you say yes. He doesn't get his way in your life unless you invite him in. He doesn't get victory in those places in your life unless you invite him into those places. It reminds me, like just the nature of this reminds me uh, of a cabin at camp. I used to be a, I used to be a um, camp director up at Forest Home. And if you've ever been to camp, specifically high school, think high school boys cabin, okay? Think of going in there like, like almost the last night of camp. I would go around and we would like hang out with them, you know, chop it up, hang out at night and, uh, and just get to know them. And if you're the, going in there like on the second to last night, the last night of camp, you walk in there and it, like, it smells like three things, like socks, BO, and dirty underwear, right? That's it. Like you walk in and it just like, it's like a wall, a wall of smell that just like hits your nose as you walk in. And so I remember walking in uh, and it was just the worst smell. And I just said out loud, I was like, you guys, it smells awful in here. Like, what happened? Like, we got to air this place out, you know? But then I was like, you know what? I love them. Like, I'm going to be a good pastor in this moment. I'm just going to hang with them, even though it reeks in here. And so I hung out. And the craziest thing happened, like, after 15 minutes, it didn't smell that bad anymore. Like, thir after 30 minutes... I kind of forgot that it smelled. Like the smell that was like so pungent right when I walked in, I kind of got used to it. And then somebody else came into the cabin and was like, dude, it reeks in here. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm not crazy. Like it actually reeks in here. And it just reminds me of the nature of sin in our lives. Like the first time you do something, it's like, oh, that was awful. But the more you just kind of sit around it and get used to it, the less, it, the less repulsive it is to you. There's this word in John 3.16 that's so profound. It's the word perish. Everybody say perish. perish. I think most of the time we think about John 3.16, we think about perishing, we think about um, like afterlife type stuff. Like if I don't choose Jesus, I might perish. Um, and it's, you know, it's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I think so much of the time we think like after I die, this might happen. Um, but John uses this tense as he's talking about the word perish. It's a present tense word. It's not just referring to some future time. It's referring to like now. It's this idea that we can get used to sin and perishing now. And that our decision to either follow Jesus or not follow him, it's like we can become more accustomed to Jesus or become more accustomed to perishing now. 
this idea that we can get used to perishing now. Because I think so much of the time, it's like, we think it's like a light switch, like perishing. It's like, maybe I die and I perish, and it's like, bam, like lights are off, right? Like, oh, I like that's how we think about perishing. Let's hit the lights back on again. The way that John's talking about perishing, and I don't, it's like, Merry Christmas. Let's talk about sin and perishing, you know? It's like, no, but the, the way that John talks about perishing, it's, it's not quick, but it's slow. It's not like a quick done, it's like a slow fade. So it's, it's not like lights just going off, it's like lights dimming down slowly. So when he talks about perishing, this idea that God doesn't want us to perish, he's talking about the here and now because perishing is this slow fade from God. This choosing our own way over and over and over and over again until we find ourselves completely in the dark, but it's happening slowly. Not quick, not when we die, but now. And we can keep bringing those lights down. It happens slowly and we get to this place where we, found our, we find ourselves in a place that we never thought we would be, and it's in the dark, and it's far away from God. And it's interesting, you know that you can find yourself in church, and you can be a Christian, and you can find yourself in the dark? You can be a Christian, go to church all your life, and have things in your life that are so in the dark and so far away from God. And I think I have a passion for that tonight because I think we have a lot of Christians in here and a lot of people who have been to church a lot, but I think we can have a lot of places in our lives that are really far from God. And the thing I love about Jesus is he, didn't just, he wasn't just born and then crucified and resurrect. He lived this life. And the thing I love about Jesus are his questions because his questions like snap us into reality, into the reality that he's talking about. He asked this question to a man who is sitting by a pool for 38 years paralyzed. This man was sitting by the pool because the pool supposedly had healing properties and he could never get to the pool to get healed because he had no help. And so Jesus comes up to him and asks what seems like the dumbest question you could possibly ask a paralyzed man sitting next to a pool for 38 years. He asked, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And there's a couple of different reasons he might have asked that. One, a lot of people say, hey, he wanted this man to participate in his own healing. He wanted this man to have faith in who Jesus was and what he could do. He wanted to see a sign of faith. But then some other people say that Jesus might have asked this question to this man to wake him up, to snap him to, like, like smelling salt in front of your nose, like wake you up. Do you want to get well? Because you've been here for 38 years and yeah, you're by this pool that's supposed to heal you, or yeah, you've been coming to church all your life and you're in this place that's supposed to be good for you, but have you just gotten used to some things? Have you gotten used to some things in your life that are so different than I want them to be? Do you want to get well? So that's just the question I wanna end on right now and I wanna pose to you. Is there a place in your life that's in the dark and have your eyes gotten used to it? What was so shocking at first, have you become used to it? 
And in this time of year where we celebrate this coming king and we celebrate this Jesus and you're coming home and you're with your friends and with your family, is there something tonight that Jesus is asking you, hey, in that area of your life, do you want to get well? I'm gonna ask you just to do something brave. This is a safe and good space, but if there's an area of your life that you want to get well, I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand and I'm gonna pray, pray for you. Is there anybody in here who has an area of their life that they just want to get well? I'm raising my hand with you. God, I thank you for the courage of those who are raising their hands right now. I thank you that you're a God who meets us exactly where we are and not where we should be. I thank you that you're a God who has the power to heal. God, that sin doesn't have the last word, that darkness doesn't have the last word. God, the darkness has not overcome the light. You are the light of the world and you have come to heal us. So I pray for that area. I pray for that issue. I pray for the broken place, that dark place where we're raising our hands about God and pray that you would bring healing, that you would bring freedom. God, that you would bring the fullness of your life and light. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at calvya underscore or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.